Hi Teamsters, I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison, and this is Podcast Without an Audience. Where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. And we got our booster shot. How you feeling? I feel good. We literally got it like 30 minutes ago. I know, I feel great so far. We did not go into shock. We were able to drive ourselves home. We definitely did not wait the full 15 minutes, though we would advise everyone else to do so. Yeah, don't listen to us. Yeah, we went and got cat food and then left. Yeah. (laughs) I thought that was a good... I mean, it was like... 15-ish, but definitely not a full 15. Yeah. We also don't have a history of actually having a negative reaction, so there's that. We were pretty confident in that decision. Um, But yeah, so fingers crossed we have no actual reactions, because tomorrow is Monday. Tomorrow is Monday. Yeah, I I felt fine with my other two. I think I was just tired, but tomorrow's going to be a long day of work. Yeah. Yep. Fingers crossed. Fingers, fingers crossed. Send us good vibes, except that it will be Thursday when you hear this. So retroactively, if you could, please send us good vibes. <laughs> oh, In I the multiverse, yeah. send us good vibes. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Um, so have you been... Ke- I know that you're not on the TikTok, which mm-hmm. is still unfortunate, though I completely understand because I lose hours a day. I did finally set a timer on my TikTok, so now it tells me to stop after 30 minutes. Oh, that's healthy. Yeah. I set it for... TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Oh, I need yeah. that. Yeah, it's really nice. And um, in the past, like, four days, I haven't even hit my timer. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, Are you better than all of us? Um, I have just been preoccupied is what it boils down to. Yeah. Good for you for having a life. Thank you. Um, it's what audiobooks, a mountain view, and good friends will do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Ray just got audible. Aw. Mm-hmm. How's he liking it so far? He likes it. He likes it a lot. I have his login now, thank God. Did you I, have my login at I any couldn't, point? I couldn't get in. I don't know why. Uh, I don't remember why, but... Yeah. Well, I'm sorry that mine never worked for you, but what book has he started out with? He um, he just re- uh, he listened to uh, 50 Cent's book. Oh. Mm-hmm. And do we have a rave review, or how are you feeling about it? He said he enjoyed it? it. Good. He said he enjoyed it. He was up in New York for a conference, so... He just listened. It was like eight hours. Nice. So he just nice absorbed all the content. Good. Yeah. Um, I'm currently listening to two audiobooks. Um, one because I have a topic coming up that I wanted to research, and it was I was driving a lot for work, so that Why made not? more sense. And then the other one is Anxious People by Frederick Bachman, mm-hmm. who's one of my favorite Swedish authors. He did A Man Called Uva. Mm-hmm. Did have we talked about that before? It's about the man who, like... Called is Uva. Called mm-hmm. Uva. Mm-hmm. And every day he, like, thinks about killing himself, but every day he finds a reason not to. Oh. And it's really cute. Like, one, for one day he finds a cat, and he's like, well, now I've got to take care of this cat. So... Yeah. That is great, but also <laughs> kind of sucks. And then one day his, like, neighbors come and knock on the door, and he's like, well, they've disturbed me, so I might as well... S- stay alive for another day wow that's morbid as fuck <laughs> it's he's really funny though mm-hmm. it's a funny book mm-hmm. if you'd believe that I'm, this one is about a bank robber um mm-hmm. who ends up accidentally like busting in on an apartment viewing because he's a really bad bank robber mm-hmm. and now like we're hearing all the backstories of all the different people and how they're connected and why they're all anxious was he uh i can relate yeah was he um 
breaking into an apartment or into a bank? So, great question. He was he tried to rob a bank for like $6,500. That's not enough. <laughs> and uh, the bank teller was like, this is a moneyless bank. We don't actually keep cash here because I guess that's a thing in Switzerland. Hmm. Or Sweden? Sweden. Sweden. My bad. Um, so moneyless it's just banks. just the illusion of money. Correct. Just like it's an illusion of time. Right. Um, so he has this failed bank robbery attempt and then he assumes the police have been called so he's trying to run away and accidentally runs into what he thinks is an empty apartment but ends up being hmm. a very full apartment because people are viewing the apartment. Right. But he was just trying to get away from the police so he ends up accidentally taking some hostages. Oh. But again, he's really bad at it. Yeah. So. Mm. Yeah. Fascinating. But yeah, I love audiobooks. I think I am about up to about 150, maybe 170 on my Audible account. That's great. Yeah, I wish I could share them with people. Like, that's the one downfall. Yeah. Is I can't be like, hey, here's this book. Go and check it out. Right. Yep. I know. I know. I wish I, well, now that I know you have that many books, I definitely need your login. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of them are really good. I've got Tipping the Velvet and pretty much everything else Sarah Waters has ever written. Mm Mm-hmm. And those are like a comfort book, so I go back to them regularly. Yeah, and I've got all the Harry Potters. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I have Sonia Sotomayor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg's autobiographies. Mm. So Brock and Michelle, of course. Right, of course, of so, course. <laughs> naturally, yeah. So love that for you. You're more than welcome to borrow my login. Thank you. You're welcome. So we were also talking about before we started recording that we we were just like checking out on our hosting site how many countries have listened to the podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we are up to uh, thirty countries, like on the on the money, thirty countries. That's wild, isn't that cool? Everywhere from I think we've touched. I'm looking. We have an actual map on our hosting site, which is also cool because you can see it like start to fill in. So, of course, naturally, our most of our downloads are from the United States. But we've also got like Europe, parts of Asia, Australia, Scandinavia, um, Brazil, so some South America and even one in Africa. Where in Africa? Morocco. Cool. Yeah. So I think that that's just super cool. Um of course, the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. are a big three, mm-hmm. which makes sense. We have a Patreon from Finland. Finland is in the fourth place. Oh. So our Patreon from Finland has been spreading the word. I appreciate And telling that. literally everybody. I don't know how many people live in Finland. I'm assuming it's more than 101. <laughs> yeah. But telling a lot of people right. to go check us out. I love that. Yeah, I love having the, the visual of the map. Yeah. Since I'm such a visual learner. Um, and yeah, seeing it fill in. So I love that. So yeah, everybody just spread the word. <laughs> Please tell your friends, tell your mom. Tell your mom. Tell your mom to check us out. One I of the best like reviews, I can't remember if we've talked about this. One of the best reviews we have is is from a woman and she's like, I don't really know if like I'm the intended audience, but I'm in my 50s <laughs> and I love it. <laughs> And that was very cool to read. That is cool. Still, one of my very favorite reviews was the poem. I know. That was just such a creative review. I hope they got an extra sticker. I love a good poem. Me too. Oh my gosh. My new Andrea Gibson poetry book came in. Oh, it's in? Yeah. And? 
Um, so I pre-ordered, I think I mentioned it mm-hmm. when I pre-ordered it. Yeah. Um, like back in June, You Better Be Lightning by Andrea Gibson. And it's phenomenal. Like one of the best books of poetry that by them that I've ever read. Mm-hmm. Um, I now have all of their books of poetry and ha- have been like going back and systematically reading all of them. So I'm like in my second reading of this book and starting to make notes because I like to write in the margins of yeah. books. What were so. they for Halloween? Oh, they were um, Jack and Rose from oh, the Titanic yeah, 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 with yeah, their yeah. partner, Mega. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I know. I saw a few Jack and Rose costumes for Halloween this year. Really? Which is interesting. I'm not sure if the Titanic it has had a comeback. Everybody has obviously listened to our Titanic episode. Oh, that's and right. very fresh in their minds. Uh, everyone, if you haven't gone back to listen to the Titanic episode, what are you doing? Everyone else has. Everyone else. Andrea Gibson has listened to our Titanic episode. Is what we're trying Clear. to say. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Basically, that is a fact. Um, Look it up. It's in the thing. Andrea Gibson were to ever follow our podcast, I think I might just like be done. Casually like, die. We can casually cancel the rest of <laughs> our podcast because that would be the highlight for me. <laughs> Nothing well, else would follow that up. Or I beat will that. be sure to tag them in when we release this post. If you would, this that'd be great. This one is dedicated to you. Andrea Gibson. My I've dear. met you three times now. Oh. Uh, you are one of my idols. Thank you. Please be friends. I very awkwardly. So I've met, I've been to like, what, maybe 10 of their performances now. Mm -hmm. I know you've been with me to at least two or three. Mm -hmm. Um, And I saw them once in DC. But the very first time I like decided to meet them, I was in Asheville for one of their shows. And um, I went by myself. It was my first time going alone. And I was like sitting out in the audience and journaling while... Like, I was waiting for the show to start because I got there abnormally early because I was anxious about getting there too late. Yep. So um, I realized at the end of the show that I want to, like, stand in line to meet them, but I didn't have one of their books with me for them to sign. So instead, I just kind of, like, awkwardly held out my journal. I was like, will you sign my journal? Mm. It was very cute. And they did. And they did. And it was a sweet little note that I have now torn out and put in the book that they did sign. Okay. Okay. Which I think I got signed when you and I went together. And they signed um, the poem, oh, what's it called? With the deer on it? No? No. no. Isn't there one that with like some oh, antler? Oh, yeah. It was um, Angels of the Get Through is the name of the poem that I asked them to sign. And you're right. There's a deer on the cover of that. It kind of mm-hmm. looks like a Patronus. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. See? Yep. So, there we are. <sighs> this one's for you, boo-boo. Well, let's get into it. What are we talking about for some psychology and history? I feel like there's a great segue or lead in here with poetry and um, the deep emotions that it can evoke Mm -hmm. and poetry that I myself have written a long time ago Mm -hmm. about grief and loss. Okay. So today we're going to be talking about the stages of grief by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. All right. Um, Woo! Grief! Yeah! (laughs) But we're going to start out with one of my very favorite movies. I think it's also one of yours. And you only get one line in order to guess which movie this is. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Shelby was right. It is a brown football helmet. Steel Magnolias. Okay. That's the line you pick. Shelby was right. It was a good... It was right after the funeral. 
Uh-huh. So right after the funeral, uh, Sally Fields, yeah. Malen is like breaking down. She's it's a good monologue. It's a it's a it's really the good beginning monologue. of one of my favorite monologues from probably most any movie from that era. Like I can't think of a better one. Um, and of course, it ends with um, you missed out on the chance of a lifetime. Half a chickapin parish would get their eye teeth to take a whack at Weeza. That's right. Hit her. I just love it. Hit her, Malin. Um, so anyways, let me set the scene. Year is 1989. Movie is still Magnolias. And Malin, who's played by Sally Field, has just lost her daughter, Shelby, played by Julia Roberts, due to complications from diabetes and kidney issues. The reason I love this scene is that it is heartbreaking, but also healing at the same time. There's such deep pain here, but there's also a connection to love and friendship. Malin's friends aren't there to fix her. They're simply listening to her and her deep and complex emotions. In fact, Malin goes through every stage of grief in this scene. Like she goes from being deeply depressed Mm -hmm. to filled with rage Mm -hmm. to bargaining. Like, why couldn't it have been me? Mm to um even a little bit of like denial like and then kind of back to acceptance of like how will her son know how great his mother was Mm -hmm. like that there's a level of acceptance there and just living in the grief but knowing that they're going to have to figure it out Mm -hmm. and then the whack at weeza is my favorite line i wanted to give you that one to start but i figured you might know it from the beginning of the monologue instead of the end i did not get the helmet and I'm ashamed. Well, one of my biggest fears is that my hair looks like a brown helmet right after I get a haircut. Like, I know it doesn't. It doesn't. I'm going to... Nope. But every once in a while, I look in the mirror, and I'm like, I either look like Ramona Quimby or it's a brown football helmet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So those are, like, my two all, two options. <laughs> Nothing in between. No. Very black and white thinking. Yep. Okay. So there are five stages of grief, and I think most people are probably pretty familiar with them. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about the five stages. We're also going to talk about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who's really interesting. Um, And then I'm going to share with you a little bit about ambiguous loss, which is where a lot of my grad school stuff came in. So the five stages of grief are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. We'll go through each one. What's important to note is that these don't happen in any particular order. Some people may only experience some of the stages, and there's no amount of time that someone is like going to spend in any specific stage. Got it. So some people will stay in the anger stage for a long time, like days, weeks, maybe even months. Um, and other people will move through anger in a matter of hours mm-hmm. or like Malin in the matter of a conversation. Um, but the model was first introduced by Swiss American psychiatrist, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and her 1969 book on death and dying. The book was based on her work with temp- terminally ill patients, but let's go back and talk a little bit more about Dr. Kubler-Ross. She was born July 8th, 1927 which makes her a cancer, mm-hmm. in Zurich, Switzerland. And well, fun fact Rooney, she was a triplet. Oh, wow. Isn't that cool? She was, so I don't know why this is relevant, but the tri- of the triplets, two were identical and she was not. Mm-hmm. So I wonder what kind of weird complex that gave her. Oh, uh, yeah. Do you know her birth order? I don't. Mm. 
But for multiples, like they tend to find their own birth order within like a regular birth order. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So they're very adamant about like who was born first. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And one is very clearly usually treated as like the baby of the family. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Um, at age five, she was hospitalized with pneumonia. This is where she had an experience with death. Her roommate um, died peacefully in her sleep one night, and it, like Elizabeth saw a dead wow. body and was like just processing this. Wow. From this, she later reflected and said that it helped her believe that death is a necessary stage of life. One must be prepared to face it with dignity and peace. She spoke at great length about death and dying, and later she became one of the central figures in, hosp- in the hospice care movement. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about the hospice care movement and um, dying with dignity and death doulas at some point, but know that she kind of really invested and kickstarted a lot of that. Okay. Where her story gets really interesting is she may have joined a cult. Oh. So at one point. She dabbled. I mean, don't we all a little bit, though? Some more than others. (laughs) From this point, she opens the Shanti Nahela Healing Center, where she begins to study like out-of-body experiences, mediumship, and spiritualism. So she's kind of like figuring out afterlife stuff, spiritual connections to life and death. And she starts to work with a man whose name is Jay Barham. Barham? P.T. Barnum. <laughs> Who is the founder of the Church of the Facet of the Divinity. I feel like we could have come up with a more concise name, but who are we to judge? We have never started a cult. He claimed that he could channel the spirits of the departed and summon entities for sexual relationships. And he encouraged church members to engage in sexual relationships with the spirits. Mm -hmm. So one of the issues with this was that there was this um, belief. I don't think it was not unfounded that he would hire people to pretend to be spirits and have sex with people who were trying to have sex with a spirit. Huh. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> so there were some sexual assault allegations made. Okay, hold on just a second. Yeah. What? Yeah, so... so okay, set the scene. So I'm, like, wanting... You're wanting to have sex with a ghost. You want to hook Natural. up with a ghost. I, you know, to get in touch with your spiritual side. Perfect. So I call upon the ghost. Ring, ring. Yep. And the ghost knocks on your door, comes in, and hopefully uses a condom. Oh, gross. Yeah. <laughs> um. Okay. Interesting. Yep. So. All right. All right. So there was a sex scandal dealing with ghosts and you might actually want to add this one to your cult list because this would be a really interesting cult to study so i didn't want to go too deep in the woods because Mm -hmm. it may come up later for you but a few years after the sex scandal let me rewind a few years after the sex scandal dr kubler ross announced the ending of her association with bar barham barham however we say his name Mm -hmm. so it took her a couple of years to be like meh Maybe this wasn't a great decision on my part. Mm-hmm. Okay, so back to Kubler-Ross. She was fascinated by near-death experiences as well and was an advocate for spiritual guides and the afterlife. So we're getting into a little woo-woo mm-hmm. stuff, which I'm fine with, mostly. Maybe don't join a cult or start a cult. 
She also conducted workshops on life, death, grief, and AIDS in different parts of the world. And one of her greatest wishes was to have a hospice for abandoned infants and children with HIV where she could care for them until their death. This was, of course, in the 1970s and 80s, and she wanted to open the hospice in Virginia. And I don't know how much you know about Virginia, but they were like, nah, we don't want a bunch of kids with HIV coming to live here because Mm -hmm. they'll infect the whole community because they didn't know anything about HIV. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So they basically turned down the idea. Opponents for uh, opponents of her AIDS work are suspected of having set her house on fire a few years later. Oh wow! And she like lost everything, all of her work, a lot of the books that she was working on. Um, so really tragic. But she was a strong advocate for people um, with AIDS and HIV and mm-hmm. giving them a peaceful death. Yeah. In total, she wrote about 20 books on death, loss, and grief. Um, She's a very quotable writer, and one of my favorites is, quote, when I die, I'm going to to first dance in all the galaxies. I'm going to play and dance and sing. Mm, That's got Hedwig vibes for me. Right? Mm -hmm. Oh, it absolutely does. Angry Inch, Mm -hmm. not the bird. Not the bird. Got it. Another favorite is, quote, however healthy you think you are, remember that vegetarians die too. So... We do. I guess that negates my plan of living forever. <laughs> I will simply deny the crown and live forever. <laughs> I hate that you came up with that before I did. In 2007, um, she was named as one of the most important thinkers of the 20th century by Time Magazine, um, even though this was after she died in 2004. So let's get back to the stages of grief and what they look like. The first stage is denial and isolation, Um, and this really looks like avoidance, like you're completely avoiding the issue or the loss, confusion, you might be in shock, or even experiencing some fear. Anger, you might feel like something extremely unfair has happened, um, and we might question like what we did to deserve it. So it feels like a very personal loss. You might experience frustration, irritation, anxiety, and shame. Mm. Bargaining is craving a sense of control. Um, someone who's in the bargaining phase and also religious, like, may try and negotiate with God to keep the person alive or mm-hmm. to prevent the loss from happening, even retroactively. It's like fawning, kind of, right? Like, yeah. A little bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely a trauma response because mm-hmm. grief, especially a tragic loss, is very much a traumatic event for a right. lot of people. Right. So there is certainly an overlap. And not just death. Right. There's other things that could yeah. trigger all of this too, right? Yeah, I made a, f- a little list too. Oh. So a you just beat list. me to it. Who doesn't love a list <laughs> though? Uh, depression is the fourth step and it's feeling the full weight of sadness over the loss. Yeah. Um, so there's a difference between depression and grief and having depression, like mm-hmm. major depressive disorder. Um, So if the depression phase goes on for long enough, you may need to seek support Mm -hmm. and therapy. Um, The depression is where you're also searching for some kind of meaning over the loss. You're trying to figure out, like, why would this have happened? Yeah. And then acceptance. Um, And acceptance doesn't mean that you're not still grieving. It doesn't mean that you're feeling better. It just means that you've kind of accepted that the loss is permanent Mm -hmm. um, and that it is real and... You know, all of those things. Yeah. 
So it's important to remember that these aren't just about the death of a loved one. It could be any major loss, a breakup, losing a job, losing your living situation or house. Mm -hmm. Um, And the stages of grief don't begin when the loss occurs. They can begin when you know a loss is coming. So, like, you might have to go through a grieving process if you know that you have a major transition at work coming up and you're going to be leaving your job and starting something new. Mm -hmm. Like, you might experience grief at that point. Um, There are also two other proposed stages of grief and loss. Um, These are shock, which is, like, the initial paralysis of hearing the news. Mm Mm-hmm. And testing, which is like seeking realistic solutions. So Problem figuring solving. out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's basically, I mean, it's one of Kubler-Ross's big theories. Is like there are these five stages. People go through them at different times. Sometimes you might circle back. Like you might feel as though you've processed all of your anger around losing a person or losing a situation. Um, and then you are feeling depressed and then you might go back to being angry about it yeah and that's okay like feelings are clues that you need to either first you need to feel your feelings Mm -hmm. and then let go of them where you can and like not live in them but also feelings are a sign to your brain that you need something like depression and isolation are a sign that you need connection with people Mm -hmm. sadness is a sign that you need help like these are uh anger could be a sign that you're highly dysregulated and need something to help soothe you yeah so recognizing that emotions don't come from nothing and don't go away without really just experiencing them you can't push down the emotions forever and just process without really processing your grief yeah Otherwise, it'll pop back up like a daisy. Yeah. And, of course, I work with kids in foster care. And what I've noticed frequently is that kids in foster care are really angry. And some of this feels very valid. Like, of course, they're angry. They're in foster care. But when we start thinking about all of the losses that they've experienced and all the grief, and you see that anger is grief rather than bad behavior, Mm -hmm. it really changes the way that you approach that kid. Yeah. So... Which brings me to my next point. Um, I want to talk about Dr. Pauline Boss for a few minutes. Pauline wrote a book called Ambiguous Loss. And this concept comes out, or the book came out in like the 1970s, so just after Kubler-Ross's book. Ambiguous loss is defined as a loss that occurs without closure or clear understanding. It complicates and delays the process of grieving and can result in unresolved grief. Okay, so there are two types of ambiguous loss. Physical and psychological. Physical loss is when the physical body is gone, but mentally they're still present. For example, like someone who has a family member in the military and they're MIA and never recover a body. Like their body is gone, but you're like psychologically, you feel like they're still there. Um, Or there's still hope. There's still a chance they might come back. Mm -hmm. This is really common for the kids I work with in foster care. Like, especially kids whose parents' rights have been terminated. Mm-hmm. Like, they know that their parents are still out there in the world. Yeah. So there's no closure. Yeah. Because, like, realistically, going back to mom and dad is still an option. Sure. Except legally, it's not an option. Right. And a lot of social workers are scared to have those conversations with kids 
or they don't recognize it because they think, well, I've told them that they're not going back to mom, so they should understand that. But that's not how psychological no. physical loss works. Right. The other idea or the other type of loss is psychological loss, where physically the person is still there, but psychologically they're absent. This is like people who experience severe addiction. Mm-hmm. Like physically they might still be there, but psychologically you're not able to connect with them. Yeah. Um, like there's a barrier up. There this is also true for Alzheimer's or people whose parents or grandparents have dementia. Yeah. Um, you feel like they're still there, but psychologically they're not. Uh, Dr. Boss says, ambiguous loss makes us feel incompetent. It erodes our sense of mastery and destroys our belief that the world is fair, orderly, and and a manageable place. But if we learn to cope with uncertainty, we must realize that there are differing views of the world, even when the world is less challenged by ambiguity. If we were to turn the corner and cope with uncertain losses, we must first temper our hunger for mastery. That is the paradox. Is that we can't exist in a world where there is so much uncertainty mm-hmm. um, without feeling like we're losing control. And we can't have control if everything feels ambiguous. Mm-hmm. So you've kind of got to come to terms with both. Um, the grieving process is different, like the five stages of grief are in some ways different when the loss is final because they're removing all the uncertainty. Like there is no chance that this is coming back, that this relationship would get back together or this job will come back to you or the person who passed away is going to come back from the dead. Mm-hmm. Um, so closure can exist in that way. But with ambiguous loss, closure just doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. Um, from here, she goes on to say that there are three different types of grief. So the first type of grief is anticipatory, which occurs before the death or, gr- or loss. Or event, yep. Yep. Disenfranchised grief, which is grief that's unrecognized or not taken seriously, like the loss of a pet or mm-hmm. the loss of a friend of a friend, mm-hmm. like a loss that is hard to put into words or explain to other people. Mm-hmm. Um so people either don't recognize that you're grieving or they don't take that grief seriously. Mm-hmm. And then frozen grief, which is feeling stuck or frozen because grief cannot run its normal course. This is typically where ambiguous loss comes in. This and disenfranchised. But it's you're stuck in this grieving process because there's no closure. Mm-hmm. So how these all kind of, we've got three big pieces. We've got the five stages of grief. We've got ambiguous loss and now three types of grief. Mm -hmm. And so under the three types are all five stages of grief. It's just a matter of whether you start grieving before the event, whether that grief is recognized or whether you're fully able to experience that grief because of the ambiguous nature of it kind of falls into that third category yeah and it's so situational too and it just it really just depends on what it is where you are who you have to support yeah like what kind of person you you have to be during this whole process because i know a lot of times like parents especially have to like be the rock Mm -hmm. and hold the family together if there's some type of loss within the family oh absolutely Um, also like not being able to grieve because you are in the process of 
closing out an estate for somebody or mm-hmm. planning a funeral or right. like being like, what the hell am I going to do with all this stuff in this house? So you're having to push down all mm-hmm. that grief so that you can like physically get, get through, through it. it. Yeah. But then all that grief has to come out somewhere. Mm-hmm. Like emotions don't just go away because you're not experiencing them. They oh, just yeah. get bottled up and then they come out eventually. And then like, you know, we, you talked about knowing, kind of knowing that it's coming and being able to prepare yourself for a loss, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. There's also the other side of the coin where something sudden happens and it kind of knocks the breath out of you. And those are each difficult in their own own ways. This was a big conversation I remember having in grad school was, is it easier when you don't have the big buildup to the loss, like mm-hmm. having a parent or grandparent with um, something like Alzheimer's or dementia, where you know that at some point they're going to, in many ways, be unrecognizable. Mm-hmm. Is that easier than the sudden loss, like through a tragic event? Oh, I, I, don't I don't think know. either is easier. Like, I don't think there's any way to prepare your body in your heart and your mind for the stages of grief. Well, think about it like I'm thinking about it less death and more like relationships. Oh, like yeah. if you are going to be the one to be to break up with somebody, you have mentally prepared yourself for what's going to happen. You have been able to for the most part probably grieve yeah. the loss of the relationship and then being the person being broken up with it could be out of nowhere for yeah. you. And you yeah. might feel like you got the wind knocked out of you a little bit. Yeah. No, I totally agree with that. I think it's hard either way. Yeah. And then also seeing another person grieving can be, can re, like, take you back through your own stages of grief again. Yeah. Yeah. So, have you, I've, I've had, um, friends who have also had friends where somebody's grieving and it's just like consuming every aspect of their life yeah and then the other person's like okay it's been x number of weeks or months it's like get the fuck over it when that's not really always possible but then the other friend is now trying to support the one that's grieving and then it's 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 a whole big thing feelings you know what i mean feelings are tough feelings are very hard yeah. Um, but loss, I think, it, you know, it's it's that empty feeling. Something is missing. Yeah. And I think one of the best um, kind of allegories for experiencing grief is that when you first have a traumatic event, it's like there's your brain is a box and there's a button that gets pushed every time um, the grief ball hits it. But when you first experience grief, the ball is huge. Like when you first experience a loss, that ball takes up most of the space in your brain. Yeah. And then as time goes on, the grief ball shrinks and gets smaller and smaller and it hits that button less and less. So you experience it less, Mm -hmm. but it never really goes away. Yeah. Like whether it's, you know, missing something about a person you used to date or, Um, missing a grandparent or a pet like the hardest thing is when that is triggered um, having to like go through whatever grief that brings up for you over and over again and I think that goes back into the disenfranchised loss like because it could be years down the road and you look at something and you're like 
oh my god this reminds me of this like tragic thing that happened or even something that maybe didn't feel tragic but now does or that is a very interesting thing i think people realize much later about how things affect them too like people who are still you know in their 30s and 40s like discussing family trauma and oh absolutely divorce yeah stuff like that you know yeah it's a big deal grieving that yeah and it keeps coming back up i mean until there's really no until like your brain you will always have a loss once you once it's happened your brain keeps it Mm -hmm. in so many ways but you might experience the effects of it less and less over time so how how do you recommend dr watkins Mm -hmm. uh for people experiencing grief what to do i'm so glad you asked because that's my last little bit of notes (laughs) can you see my computer from where you are? no i cannot okay i'm just a genius (laughs) The key is uh, resilience and connection. So it's difficult to navigate any grief or loss, but we heal through our relationships with others and having strong resilience factors within ourselves. So I think one of the things that I see is if you have a friend who's grieving or if you're working with children or other people who are grieving, like allowing them to experience the full breadth of those emotions um, and just being a consistent person there for them. Um, I think there's also, like, if you yourself are the one grieving, knowing that you don't have to do it in isolation, reach out to the people that you love and who love you and who make you feel safe. Um, Feel free to call a friend up and say, hey, I am really struggling. Can you run to the grocery store and get me soup? Mm. Or Mm. if you have a friend who is struggling, make an offer that's more than just what do you need? offer something tangible, offer something like, if you know they have a dog, can I come over and just walk your dog? Mm-hmm. Or can I come over and just sit with you for a while? Do you want to watch a movie? Something that doesn't require a lot of energy mm-hmm. because people who are grieving often don't have the energy um, because they're processing so many emotions. Yeah. So the key is to know what you need know that it's okay to feel all of the complex emotions and then try to connect with people where you can. Mm -hmm. A lot of people worry, especially if like you're talking about that grief goes on for a long time, that they're going to be burdensome to their friends. Um, But most of us have experienced some kind of loss in our lives. And I think that that makes us more empathetic and uh, supportive of one another. Yeah. And the, I think when you're experiencing grief, you're low on spoons. Yeah. That reminds me of the no bones day, bones day. Oh, oh my gosh. That's exactly what we were going to be talking about at the beginning. And then we got sidetracked with audiobooks. So TikTok, bones days and no bones days. There's a 13 year old pug named Noodle whose owner, John, um, every day goes over to him and like picks him up out of his little sleeping bed and asks if it's going to be a bones day or no bones day Mm -hmm. and neither are bad but Mm -hmm. bones days are like go out and do the big things make the purchase if you need to make a big purchase like do all the things that you have all the extra spoons for Mm -hmm. and then no bones days are he says don't wear hard pants like only wear soft pants um i definitely changed my pants one day this week when he was like it's a no bones day and i was like cool sweatpants sweatpants got it is. um and it's just like a take care of yourself day winter what we call it a couple of episodes ago armadillo mm-hmm. like curl up and be an armadillo if you need to be yeah, an armadillo. armadillo day oh god we have not used that enough armadillo day 
you know what? We're going to have an armadillo or no armadillo day. I love it. Or armadillo day. What would be the opposite of an armadillo day? We'll have to like... Um, uh, unclear. <laughs> what's it? We'll have to get a focus group on that. Like, okay. What's the opposite of an armadillo? Yeah. I would say a warm gerbil. <laughs> like a, a basking in the sun gerbil gerbil is that it's got like tons of energy to run around and i think i'm thinking like big stretch bloop or like a bunny a bunny oh that'd be a little bunny yes we'll work on it whatever we'll see whatever whatever the opposite of armadillo day is Mm -hmm. so armadillo days are no bones days Mm -hmm. and then warm gerbil day and then warm gerbil day (laughs) you're welcome sweeping the nation (laughs) (laughs) spoons or no spoons where are we basically exactly So we're just uh, recycling that concept, which I love. I'm so glad that we're bringing awareness to spoons and spoon Mm -hmm. theory in some small way. Like it's so applicable. Yeah. I definitely see it more now that we've talked about it, but I've of course heard about spoon theory for a while, but I just see a lot of it on TikTok and YouTube and yeah, it's so helpful. Yeah. Oh yeah. I I didn't hear about it until you told me about it. So I'm new. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome to the club. On Wednesdays, we wear pink. Mm. It is BYOS, though. Bring your own spins. Bring your own sloth. Yep. Sloth swipe. Sloth swipe for life. All right. We're deteriorating. We should take a break. We need a break. <laughs> and then we will come back. Let's go for, upstate. What? Let's go upstate. Uh, Never mind. <laughs> no, I'm trying to come up with the next line from the Hamilton song, and I can't. There's it's a, been a long day. There's a there's a lake. Girl, we gotta go. We'll be right back. Uh, I'm done. <laughs> Welcome back. Welcome back. We, ooh, got some snacks (laughs) we did we took a snack break we took a snack break sometimes you just need a fucking snack break. oh my god i had um the 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 pretzels with the like honey mustardy like powder so good i had cheetos i know (laughs) i love that journey for you (laughs) and you also had the, the popcorn oh yeah if you have any desire to eat, eat a scented candle yeah. this holiday season, <laughs> Smart Food Popcorn has come out with a caramel and cinnamon apple mix that tastes delightfully like every Christmas candle I've ever smelled. There is a very distinct thing. Like, pumpkin beer can sometimes taste like a candle. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a thing. I mean, I'm still eating them, to be clear. Yeah. But you said the aftertaste was good. Yeah, the aftertaste was cinnamon. It's great. It's perfect. Awesome. Well, why don't you settle in? Sit back, relax. Sit back, relax, because we're going to be talking about the very traumatic Ellis Island. Cool, 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 cool. So we're going for two downers today. So tomorrow might be an armadillo day for everybody. This is actually very interesting. I mean, I'm not talking about grief. I'm not like some people. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Um, I like, feel do you understand what I'm like I'm standing in the shade now, and <laughs> I don't right. appreciate that. Like the backside of the pillow. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Okay, so Ellis Island is an island in New York Harbor that was the busiest immigration inspection station in the United States. Between 1892 and 1954, almost 12 million immigrants arrived at the Port of New York and New Jersey and were processed there under federal law. So today, the island is a part of the Statue of Liberty National Monument and can be reached only by ferry. The island is also divided. The north side of the island has the main building where immigrants were held in initial, like initially upon arrival. Mm-hmm. And then the southern side uh, is where the hospital was. The main building is now a National Museum of Immigration, and the hospital is open to guided tours. And we should absolutely go well one of my goals i have um an ancestry account and do a lot of genealogy and paid for like the super full service one um because like it does international documents and things too and one of my goals is to find a relative who went through ellis island so i would love to go with you and uh see if we can find someone who showed up there so far i haven't found many immigration records though i did find uh, my grandparents honeymoon to canada so that's cool so one of our really fantastic listeners has a genealogy business called not forgotten genealogy so this is a really great opportunity to shout them out super fucking awesome but how cool maybe we should reach out to them whenever we're going up to ellis island there we go Hey. Could get you some answers. Definitely check her out on Instagram. Oh, absolutely. So the island itself was created by uh, retreating glaciers about 15,000 years ago. Uh, when the glaciers came in, you know, obviously it carved out the, the land. And then when the glaciers melted, uh, the New York Bay surrounded the land. And boom, we have an island. <laughs> Is that how islands are formed? That's exactly right. It depends. It depends. Oh, don't even get me started on the tectonic plates. You know what I'm well, saying? I was thinking Maui, the demigod, pulling them up from the mm. sea. Also a good option. Yeah. Also, it just depends on where you're from. Are we into the science, the supernatural, or the glaciers that or the destroyed the Titanic? Yeah. So the Mohegan name for the island was Kioshk, which means Gull Island. Um, and it's unlikely that people actually lived on the island because it dis- it like was consumed by the tide. So it wasn't like anything that people were living on. But in 1630, the Dutch purchased the island as a gift. Um, and the collection of islands around it, which was Liberty, Black Tom, and Ellis Island, were all given the name Oyster Islands. Very tipping the velvet vibe. I love that. Mm-hmm. And by 1760, and by the 1760s, Little Oyster Islands became an uh, an execution site for pirates. Ooh, like a public execution site. Okay, because you could like see it from the mainland, right? And they would like take them all out there and just kill them. Okay, yeah. Well. And eventually, um, Samuel Ellis purchased the island, which is where the name comes from. So let's flash forward to the 19th century the island was the site of fort gibson it then transitioned into an immigration inspection station as of january 1st 1892 
The first person that came through for processing was a girl named Annie Moore, and she was 17 years old. She was traveling with her brothers to meet her parents in the U.S. So nearly 700 other individuals came through that same day for processing. That's so many people. By the next year, over 400,000 immigrants had come through for processing. Wow. I know. Quote, additional building improvements took place through the mid-1890s, and Ellis Island was expanded to 14 acres by 1896. The last improvements, which entailed the installation of underwater telephone and telegraph cables by Governor's Island, were completed in early June 1897. So, you said underwater telephone and telegraph wires? Beep, 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 beep. Yeah, my brain stopped working right after underground <laughs> or underwater telephone. And I was like, who needs that? Everyone. Like, who are we calling that <laughs> needs an underground phone? Under the sea. Clearly, I need more snacks. You do. Just keep drinking that the cider. Cider. <laughs> On June 15th, 1897, the wooden structure on Ellis Island were raised in a fire of unknown origins. While there was no casualties, the wooden buildings had completely burned down after two hours, and all immigration records from 1855 had been destroyed. Oh, maybe that's why we can't find any immigration records. I don't know that that's even close to any of the time my family was coming over, but... Yeah. It would at least explain why I haven't found any yet. Well, that could be it, and it could be that they didn't... So where were they coming from? Uh, Ireland, mostly. Okay, then Ireland, yeah, they would have come from... UK. Hmm... I don't know. I don't either. That's it depend- okay. Yeah, it depends on when when they came through. Uh, we'll kind of touch on, we'll cross that bridge, like, kind of. Cool. But it might be something we need to do some further research on and contact our friends to yeah, find yeah, out yeah. more. The second station opened in 1900. It had facilities on sites to quarantine individuals coming in and to process their paperwork, end quote. So processing included a series of medical and mental health examinations. If individuals did not pass these examinations, they would be deported. Individuals were required to present paperwork, which showed where they were coming from, you know, documents if they had them on, you know, whether like birth certificate documents, basically just like tying them to a location where they're from, how old they were, um, If someone had all of their paperwork, like if everything was perfect, everything went as to plan, it took about three to five hours to be processed through Ellis Island. That's so fast. I'm thinking about our immigration stuff now Mm -hmm. and how the government is doing a horrible job of supporting people who are seeking refuge in the U.S. or asylum or even who just want to immigrate here. And it can take months and years even to, like, be fully processed. And um, there's so many hoops you have to jump through. And just thinking about the difference between three or four hours and months and years. And I don't know. And and the way that it was happening is not like the right way. And we're going to cross that bridge in just a second. But it is important to note that there was no type of screening happening at the place of origin. So Ellis Island was the only line of of anything between people being processed into the United States. So at this point in time, they didn't have to check in with any of the consulates in their home countries um, or anything like that. So... 
it was a very, I mean, three to five hours is like super short and very rushed. And yeah. we'll get into a lot of like assumptions that are made and like what damage that can do, like okay. making such a quick snap decision. Okay. I'm interested to hear all of your thoughts. So inspections took place in the Great Hall or the registry room. Um, it was just like this big open room where people were sitting at these tables and you basically lined up. Uh, there was zero privacy and it had like an assembly kind of feel like it was just like, get it done. Get, get these people through here. Yeah. A lot of people reported like in interviews, like feeling really uncomfortable um, and degraded by this process because there was medical examinations that were happening. And so like undressing, um, yeah, in front of strangers. And like, you have to think that this is like a huge, like melting pot of cultures. Yeah. And not everybody feels comfortable, you know, being examined in front of other people. Right. Of course. So doctors would scan people with their eyes. This is like a physical examination. They would look at you with your with their eyes and a term called six second uh, physicals was termed. By 1916, doctors were claiming to identify medical conditions at a glance. This huh. could be anything from anemia to trachoma. Um, it's an interesting party trick. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very quick examination. And you have to think also about the, the determining factor between whether somebody was going to get through or be deported was up to just a guy. Yeah. Who looks you over and is like, huh. Exactly. So there's a lot of things that could go wrong and a lot of prejudice that could be it just depends on what what, who you got really yeah and unfortunately i guess we don't know much about the people that they turned away because or do we we do oh cool we sure do unfortunately yikes it is important to note that these inspections were only required for people traveling in second and third class So first-class travelers were not paid much attention to at all. Citizenship was, like, basically automatic for them. Yep. It's expensive to be poor. Yeah. It's hard to be poor. Individuals were also asked a series of 29 questions. And this was a lot like, where are you coming from? Where are you going? What are your intentions of, like, obtaining employment while you're here? Yeah. Um, Things like that. And this was used uh, by legal inspectors, which was like another set of inspections happening on the island, basically to cross-examine and say, this is the questions, this is how they answered them with me, were they similar, were they the same, trying to kind of catch people up on yeah. like why they were coming in. Interpreters of all major languages were present and employed on the island to assist those coming in. Mm -hmm. So that was a big thing I did research that they were actively employing people who were bilingual. And like, I think I read on average, it was like three languages that a lot of these people were speaking. That's incredible. Yeah. So people are being hired to do like the inspection process. The majority of those who were denied were due to diagnosis of contagious disease um, or they were assumed to be a criminal sometimes, which we'll also get into later. Um, And like I said, there was definitely room for prejudice here. 
During the examination, individuals who were suspected of having an illness, disability, or needed further examination were marked with chalk on their shoulder. So these are people, not cattle. Yes. So they, I'm going to go through kind of a list of like what the markings meant. Okay. So C meant crabs. B meant back. So possible back issues. Okay. CT was trachoma. Okay. E was eyes. EC was eye problems. F was face. So they didn't like your face. What does that mean? FT was feet. H was heart. K was hernia. M is vaginal infection. N is neck. P is uh, physical and lungs. PG is pregnancy. SC is scalp, like a fungus on the scalp. Yeah, like ringworm. Mm -hmm. SI is special inquiry. WOP is without papers. X is suspected of mental defect. And X is definite, quote, mental defect. So Obviously, these are not my words. What were the last two? suspected mental defect and then an x with a circle around it was like confirmed like gotcha yeah you're right i don't love any of that yep 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 so if you were marked you were suspect you were subject to like involuntary stay within the hospital on the grounds for further examination the general hospital was built on the island first And it had room for 120 beds, but would grow to three times that number. Next was the girl. I can't. They literally, it was called the psychopathic hospital. Oof. I know. Yeah. Um, And then they also built the contagious disease hospital. So the idea was, and it actually ended up being like a pretty revolutionary hospital. Um if you were to look at like the medical records from the time that Ellis Island was open, it would basically be like a book of medicine. Like they saw everything from everywhere. Yeah. Was like there. Um, the intention was if you were w- with a curable disease, they would cure you and then you'd be able to come in. If you had something that they deemed incurable, you would be deported. Regardless of what it was. Regardless of what it was. So if they were able to help you, great, you can come in. Um, If not, you were not able to to enter the country. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. 350 babies were born in the hospital. Like, can you imagine like having to hold in your pregnancy, like on a, like whatever kind of vessel it took to get you there? Like you're so, like you give birth at Ellis Island. I think you and I have talked about the book Refugee before. Mm-hmm. That's about the, it's written from the perspective of three children. One's a uh, Jewish refugee, one is a Cuban refugee, and one is an Afghani refugee, mm-hmm. I think, or Syrian. Um, but the Cuban refugee's mother is pregnant on mm. their boat ride over to, from Florida, or from Cuba to Florida. Mm-hmm. And that was a harrowing story. I bet. Like, I cannot imagine being that pregnant and, like, oof. Nope. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. Um, 3,500 people died in the hospital, 
which is actually like a relatively small number. That is a small number. Yeah. Compared to one point something million? Mm-hmm. 1.5 million? A gazillion, I think is what I said. Oh. A one trillion a shit gazillion. Ton. A metric shit ton. A sh- <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so there is a man whose actual name is William Williams. I went to school with a Charles Charles. We went to school with a Jackie Jackson. <laughs> we did go to school with a Jackie Jackson. Um, uh, in the class we met. Aww. Oh, yeah. Aww. With those nails. Oh, girl. Uh, they, I that think was about like her before, so often. That was before people like did their nails like that. She was oh. like ahead of her time. Oh, and I'm sure she still is. Yeah. In all the fashionable ways. All the things. Yeah. Wow. Shout out to you. This episode is dedicated to Andrea Gibson and Jackie Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) I second that motion. So, from 1902 to 1905, the demand for immigrant labor was high, um, and it was in the best interest of William... Oh, I didn't even say what he was. <laughs> he, was the, so he was the commissioner. Name. He was the commissioner for Ellis Island. So oh, okay. there was an industrial boom. They needed people in, you know, they had tons of jobs that were available. And so it was like a really great time to promote mm-hmm. immigration, like come over, great opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, so during his first term as the commissioner on Ellis Island, he was like, come on down. Like, great. Um In his very first memo that he puts out as the commissioner, he says, quote, immigrants shall be treated with kindness and consideration by everyone at Ellis Island. Oh, I love that. Yeah, he sucks. We'll find out soon. But yeah. Okay, good intention. During his first first round as being the commissioner, he had very good intentions. Um... And I think he is just, he's subject to his surroundings and the uh, ignorance of the times. Yeah, yeah. However, at the same time, as the influx of immigrants being celebrated, there was also, like, becoming kind of like a stigma and an association with immigration and immigrants as being, uh, like, impoverished and diseased. Mm -hmm. So, the rapid industrial expansion slowed throughout the years and the need for immigration labor also slowed so then mr william williams comes back from 1909 to 1912 for a second term as commissioner of ellis island and during this term he sought to restrict immigration quote now is the time to differentiate between the good and the bad immigrant end quote I have some some concerns. Yeah. Some issues with <laughs> yeah, the statement. Yeah. And also, like, how different it seems to be from his first term. Um, questionable. Yeah. Don't like him. Don't like... Highly suspect. Yeah. Soup dupes suspicious. So, a pattern began to emerge that Southern Europeans started being turned away And they were usually Italians, Jews, and Slavics. So William Williamson began to expand requirements for entering the country, many surrounding mental illness. So federal law now denied entry to those who were, quote, feeble-minded. A federal law was passed that excluded people with physical and mental disabilities from entering the country. It also denied entry for any child who was traveling alone without a parent. 
We will also get into later some legislation that prevented other types of people from entering the country. So they are basically, in my opinion, their legislation is taking care of two things. Um, Origin, Mm -hmm. where people are coming from, and then also anything that's able to be, like, quote, determined by these doctors. Right. That might be a little bit more easily passed. They're like, oh, they just make shit up. Right. You know? Right, right, right. It sounds like they're just looking for reasons and excuses to not admit certain people. Exactly. And William Williams was interested in eugenics. So, which, of course, we know is the idea that a certain race um, and ethnic groups are superior based on biology. And other groups need to be eliminated. Yeah. Which is, yeah. Fucked up. Was a problem up until, like, the late 80s and early 90s in some states. Yeah. And it's still a problem. It's absolutely I'm sorry. We digress. Oh, fucking burn it down. The whole thing. So I didn't want to like go too much in, like into this because I know you were, you're like going to cover it at some point. But um, Henry H. Goddard was an advocate uh, for intelligence testing in mm-hmm. social institutions like hospitals and schools. And yes, like Ellis Island. Um, he was a psychologist. His questions were translated into English, the kind of general format that he had established. They were translated to English. And William Williams began using these as a way to exclude those coming into Ellis Island who fit his little box, which was usually like Eastern Europeans, um, rec- you know, stopping them from entering the cu- country based on their mental health. Right. Sorry, I was adding intelligence testing to my list. D- good. Um, they also used someone's appearance to make assumptions about mental health. They measured the size of individuals' heads and measured, like, their cranial diameter. I've heard about this. Mm-hmm. They would also just, like, look at them and make assumptions about their eyes or their face. And it just, like, mm-hmm. super subjective, just, like, really yeah. horrible stuff. Yeah. It's so cringy. Like, I can't. The amount of bias that's it's just so, it's so troubling. But I mean it's still something that we do today. Like doctors and even like anyone working with kids will look at them and be like, "Huh, that's a you know, strange face shape. I wonder if they have X Y and Z." Mm-hmm. Like there are certain things that are associated with different face shapes or like your eye spacing and mm-hmm. yeah. So that's still very much a thing that people use. It's just concerning that they yeah. use it. And the fact that all this shit is happening within like 3 to 5 hours yeah yeah and 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 that's like best case scenario right and like it's still not enough time to actually get to know a human but the majority of these people who are coming from a certain region are averaging much longer periods of time on ellis island because they're ultimately being like put into this certain category so we've spoken about mental health and physical health reasons for people being denied entry but there is also another class that would be also be denied, which was morality. Okay. Oh, fascinating. Tell yeah. me more. Tell you more. I'll do that. So those who had moral defects, like, quote, moral defects, were also deported. So the gays? Homosexuality. Knew it. Mm-hmm. Because um, that's a thing you can look at a person and tell. Fucking, I, especially during this time, like, nobody was out. Like, ugh. <gasps> I hate everyone. Burn it down. Illicit sexuality was another one. Like, how could they also have determined that based on... I mean, 
if it looks like a witch and mm-hmm. walks like a witch and oh fuck um criminals impoverished people and quote degenerate populations would also be denied cool 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 so like the amount of like the range here is yeah. huge yeah and it's entirely subjective entirely up to the per like that person's like your fate is literally in their hands yeah take one look at them i bet you have had sex before (laughs) right right and of course that's gonna be i mean it's women yeah 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 they're gonna be highly suspicious of single women traveling Uh alone right um all the white men get through yeah exactly um all the white christian men get through sure sure i'm sure that women or um non-christians and the heathens were thrown into the last category which was the degenerates yeah he said that's what they called them yeah so various laws begin to pass that would ultimately exclude entire groups of people from entering based on uh national origin so before ellis island had even opened its doors the u.s had passed something called the chinese exclusion act of 1882 which was the first, like, significant law that restricted Im- immigration. Um, and like the name suggests, it excluded an entire country from coming. Right. Next was in 1885, which was the Alien Contract Labor Law, which prevented businesses from contracting employees from other countries to come work for them. So all of these people that were coming in to the States in theory had not already set up like work right plans visas or thing mm-hmm. well exactly. i guess work visas probably weren't a thing yet not yet not yet i would um, imagine I th- work it, plan yeah i would think based on this definitely not a thing yet i'm um, also kind of surprised that the term alien is that old to describe immigrants yeah so yeah, that's 1885, interesting yes wow mm-hmm. so, also not a thing that we use like, let's remove describing people as aliens or illegal from our oh, vocabulary. You have documented or undocumented. And those are your two options. Yeah. So, in um, immig- uh, blah, blah. the Immigration Act of 1924 limited the number of immigrants allowed to enter the U.S. once again. This act stated that immigrants' Visas could be limited to 2% of the total number of people of each nationality in the U.S. as of the 1890 census. Okay, but other than the, indig- other than the indigenous peoples who are already here, mm-hmm. literally everyone else is an immigrant or was Correct. brought over against their will. Correct. So this whole 2% notion... Is fucking bullshit. <laughs> and flawed. It's fundamentally flawed. It is a way to be able to discriminate against yeah. people. That's exactly what it is. Especially the undesirable people. Yeah. That they have deemed undesirable. Deemed undesirable. Um, so it completely excluded immigrants from Asia, like the an entire fucking continent. Sure. Um, as well as some Southern and Eastern European countries as well. So as a result of this, Ellis Island saw a huge, like, decline um, beginning in the early 1920s and kind of saw, like, a steady decline over the next, like, 20 years. 
And in November, actually on November 12th, 1953, Ellis Island shut its doors after processing 12 million immigrants since its inception. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So many people can trace their ancestors' journey uh, through the U.S. Directly to Ellis Island. Yeah, in records. Except for you. Except for me. (laughs) Um, Many families claim that the legal name that their legal name was changed during the process of entering uh, the country through Ellis Island. However, I have read multiple articles that say that this is a myth. Quote, according to a myth, immigrants were unwillingly forced to take new names, though there are no historical records of this, which to be fair, there would, why why would there be? Yeah. So my, the story in our family is that my mother's maiden name was changed and previously was like a shorter version with an O in front of it, mm-hmm. um, and is now her Olus. maiden name. Yeah, mm. um, to make them sound less Irish or ah, less Scott Irish. Okay. Um, so it was done, I guess, prop- maybe even for this um, like percentage thing, like to make them sound like they were from somewhere else. That's a good point, and that's actually that the next portion is that it's also like. Uh, a whole thing that people were changing their own names either mm-hmm. after they entered or before they entered for that very reason. Yeah. Yeah. So ultimately there's really no way to know, but what we can see through this and so many other examples is that it's so it's up to a person and people are inherently flawed. So if you're writing, if you're, you have 7,000 people coming through that day or 700 people coming through that day, are you going to take the time to write their whole name down or are you going to be lazy and... And spell it correctly. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of these names have unique spellings that may Absolutely. not have been familiar to the person who is writing them down. For sure. And you might be dealing with different languages and accents. So, and like say? You could be dealing with something as little as like somebody, you being processed at the beginning of somebody's shift or the end of somebody's shift. Yeah. How many spoons does that person have to be able to fully sure. do their job? For sure. And how much pre- prejudice does that person also have? Yeah. Um, and it's ultimately, you know, we can't say. Right. Who's to say? And that, my friend, is the story of Ellis Island. You did an incredible job with that. And it's so interesting to, like, think about all the different changes since... Ellis's Ellis Island opened and closed. Yeah. Um, what do you know? What the quote is on the statue of the um, of Liberty? Yeah. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. I was close. A and B. This country was built on and by people who are not from here. After you know, the slaughter of indigenous peoples mm-hmm. and the mass exhalation of indigenous peoples. But the idea initially was like, we will be open to anyone who needs a home. Give us your tired and poor and huddled masses. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hate that that is not part of the current rhetoric around immigration. Yeah. Like, it's so frustrating to hear that children are in cages at the border, Mm -hmm. um, separated from their parents with no plans for how to reunite them. Yeah. Um, When we know that there are easier and better ways to do this, and a lot of the 
fears around immigration are blown up like way out of proportion and are just factually inaccurate. And that um, it's not something that's like from the 1800s up to 1950, whatever. Right. Like it's literally like happening right now. Today. Yeah. And yeah. And like what that does to a family and, and what that does to somebody's life. And I think that that's the intersection here is what that does to someone's family and life. So I have two thoughts that I would like to share with you and hear what you think. My first is that it's obviously traumatizing to be locked in a cage at the border, Mm -hmm. like the crisis that we have going on um, currently, but also like having to go to a hospital and being deported back to your home country from Ellis Island. Mm -hmm. Like there's so much trauma associated with that and also grief and loss, obviously, especially if you're being separated from your family, your friends, the people you were traveling with. But even more than that, I think that there's a level of disenfranchised and maybe even frozen grief and ambiguous loss, because even the people who are choosing to come here willingly are experiencing grief. Like, they might have to go through all the same stages of grief when they leave their home country to come to the U.S., but once they get here, we expect them to be grateful to have been let in. And I think that that's also really troubling because it doesn't allow people the space to just be human and to experience all of the trauma and grief that they may be experiencing. Instead, we're just like, you should be grateful that you came in and you're doing as well as you are. Here's the American dream. Yeah. Figure absolutely. it out. I think also there's something to say about the the pressures that it puts on, like the, that trauma puts on like public health. Oh like, my gosh. Yeah. If you are, oh, I don't know. It's so it's so many layers. Like, think of somebody who has sold their whole life in Ireland or anywhere, and their plan is to come to the U.S. And the U.S. is saying, "Come on in, we will accept you." Mm-hmm. Um, half of your family is allowed in. Maybe there's just one particular person for whatever reason is denied. Their entire life has been erased in their country of origin, and they are not accepted into this one. So, what do they do? Our country is saying, "Come on in," and and they and uh, I can't like yeah. Well, and I think we're even seeing that same public health crisis and and crisis in multiple systems in our current immigration catastrophe and crisis with people coming from their home countries and literally not having a place to go back to, Mm -hmm. um, literally not having a safe home anywhere. Um, Like, they could be murdered if they went home Mm -hmm. and still were not willing to help. Well, and and the infrastructures that we have are not set up. They're just not fully functioning. Well, and I think that that's... That brings me back to the idea that every system is working exactly the way that it should. We were never setting out to help people yeah. um, who were immigrating to the U.S. Like yeah. Our whole goal has always been to keep the rich in power, support the hegemonic paradigm, and let everyone else fend for themselves mm-hmm. because that's how our system grows and functions. 
So our systems weren't built with immigrants in mind. Mm -mm. So, of course, they don't work for immigrants. Why would they? Right. And then that trust and just, like, building systematic racism around a a system that was in the U.S. Yeah, you're right. From the get-go, racism was built into our system and asking people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and be grateful for their opportunities is gaslighting. This took a very (laughs) (laughs) uh, interesting political turn, Um, though you did pick Ellis Island, so I think we were kind of asking for it. Yeah, it's so dimensional, and there's so many things to consider because, like, think about even the doctors on the island, like the Hippocratic Oath. You are sworn to protect and And, to do your best. And do no harm. And do no harm. And at the same time, you're, like, you're told to, like, make a decision. Like, Mm -hmm. it is literally up to you whether this person is in or out. Yeah. And in the scheme of, like, who entered the U.S. and who didn't, outside of those federal regulations that were presented, it was a very small percentage of people that were turned away. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that also says a lot for how much the decline of immigration stopped when the federal government stepped in. Right. And had limitations based on literally where you were from, which we've yeah. seen in the past five years. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. it is a flawed system. Um, and I, I hope that you're able to find, you know, documentation about your family and to know, you. you know, you know, more information than where you started. I hope so too. Um, it's definitely been a long project. So Maybe we'll get somewhere soon. And it's important to note that, like, people entering from Ellis Island were mostly, like, European. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely, like, some parts of Asia and some parts of Africa. But I think it was easier for people in the continent of Asia to enter from the west coast of the right. U.S., just, like, geographically. Right. Um, but, yeah, a long journey, for oh, sure. Oh, absolutely. So... Well, excellent topic. Excellent job. Oh, history. Oh, psychology. (laughs) What a tangled web we weave. Oh, thank goodness we have snacks. Oh, thank God. All right. Champagne's a snack, right? (laughs) Oh, five sure. (laughs) Well, thank you guys so much for listening. If you have any thoughts on this topic, shoot us a message on Instagram. We would love to hear from you. We want this to be, you know, an open communication. Um process even if you're listening to this like 10 weeks from now a year from now we want to hear from you oh absolutely shoot us an email at pod without an odd at gmail.com as well and if you haven't left us a review on apple podcast do it please do so we'd appreciate it we might talk about it on the next episode that's exactly right um we hope you have a wonderful day wonderful rest of your week armadillo if you need to armadillo i hope your spoon count is high and if not just like be gentle with yourself. i hope you get the love language that you most desire today that's exactly right yeah if you support us blink twice and if you're out there keep listening thank you for listening to podcasts without an audience find us on social media at pod without an odd you can find us on instagram or facebook or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanaud at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, 
Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.